You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about anesthesia and pediatrics, and joining me is Dr. Ronald Littman, who's from the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care here at CHOP as well. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Katie. So we say a lot in pediatrics that kids aren't little adults, and I think this probably applies for anesthesia as well. So how is anesthesia for children different than, or how does it compare to anesthesia for adults? So the, the main difference is that when adults come for surgery, they, they come to the hospital voluntarily, and they have a little bit of a expectation of what's going to happen. So for example, they know that they have to get an intravenous uh, before they start. But most kids uh, don't have any clue as to why their parents are bringing them to the hospital. And it's a, it's a really frightening place to a lot of kids. There's a lot of strangers. And the last thing that we want is for kids to feel anxious before their surgery. We know that anxiety preoperatively can contribute to a lot of complications afterwards, such as even more pain or more post-operative behavioral changes. Mm -hmm. So we do our best to allay their fears, to make them feel as if they're in a comfortable environment. But because they're children, those kinds of interventions don't always work. And so we will often just rely on drugs, plain and simple, to, to make them feel better. So, for example, the biggest difference between a child and an adult is if, if you're an adult and you come for surgery, one of the first things that will happen is you'll get an intravenous placed. And listen, no one likes pain, but almost all adults. You expect it. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. And so, uh, and then the medicines can go through the intravenous. But with kids, we don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only are they not going to be cooperative, but it can be pretty difficult to get an IV in a crying, struggling child. So we have a variety of other ways that we can pre-medicate them. The most common way is we give them uh, an oral solution. We call the giggle juice. Mm -hmm. It doesn't taste that great, but uh, it does the trick. It makes kids, the best way to describe it is inebriated. So what is the giggle juice? Yeah, the giggle juice is midazolam, Versed. And there is an oral formulation, but for some reason, the company has never been able to make it palatable. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a struggle getting it in, and we'll let the kids uh, sip it down with a little bit of apple juice to try and mask the taste, but it's not very good. And what about intranasal version? Yeah, so that intranasal is another way we can do this. You know, most kids don't like anybody putting anything Mm -hmm. up their nose, but if... uh, if in some instances the parent tells us that they would be more amenable to a nasal spray, then we can do that too. So mm-hmm. we have a couple different medications we can use intranasally. We have midazolam, which does work, or ketamine, mm-hmm. or a relatively new drug called Presidex. That's the trade name. The, the generic name is uh, dexmedetomidine. Mm-hmm. All three of those drugs do a fairly good job of making somebody calm and oftentimes asleep by the time they come into the operating room. So how far before surgery are you meeting the patient and doing all of that? Yeah, so that depends. It's usually within about a half hour that we meet the patient. 
And then the medicine takes about 15, 20 minutes to work. So we try to time it so that about 15, 20 minutes before we put the kids to sleep, and the way we put them to sleep is by having them breathe gas from a mask. So this is a big controversy in pediatric anesthesia. What's the best way to put kids to sleep? And some centers uh, will put IVs in the kids even mm -hmm. while they're awake. Right. Here in the United States, we've developed over the last few decades this culture of the ouchless place in children's hospitals. Mm -hmm. And so in almost every children's hospital, the kids are often... Uh, undergo induction of anesthesia by breathing gas. We use, a, we use a very common gas now called sevoflurane. It's related to the old ethers. Mm -hmm. And after just a few breaths, the kids will go to sleep. The problem, however, is that, you know, if you think back, as if, if, if most adults think back to the times that they were a kid and they got their shots, say, in the pediatrician's office, very few of those times are memorable. Right. But yet, if you ask adults what they remember about a, a surgical event that they had in their childhood, many will remember this mask putting, being put over their face. It's mm -hmm. a very smothering kind of feeling. It's not something you get used to or ever develop any coping mechanisms like pain. Mm. So we try and alleviate the kid's anxiety by giving them the pre-medication before the mask. Okay. The thing we worry about the most is post-operative behavioral changes. This, this awful experience of having someone hold you down and put a mask on you can cause something that's akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And we know that the memory of that affects it the most. So anything we can do to take away that memory will help make sure that the kids don't develop this. So for example, the midazolam that we give is a really good amnestic. Mm -hmm. And most kids don't remember, even if they struggle when we put the mask on them, afterwards most kids will not remember uh, that experience. You think the post-op distress that you see in kids is from the memory of having put the mask on? Well, it's really, traumatic yeah, I mean, it's really hard to tell exactly what is caused by, but there's some pretty good research over since, actually since the 1960s, that shows that the more pre-medication you give the kids, mm -hmm. the less behavioral changes they'll have afterwards. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, people have tried different ways. Like, so for example, uh, a distraction therapy sometimes works. Mm -hmm. And if you can get the kids to be focused on, say, a video game, right. or now people are using virtual reality glasses in some mm -hmm. institutions, that technology hasn't been perfected yet, hopefully soon. Then if you can, anything that diverts the kids' attention away from what you're doing will maximize the chances that they won't have a traumatic experience associated with it. And on that note, sometimes parents ask us, how much of this process are they around for? And certainly having your parent there can in many cases be comforting. In some cases, it might be traumatic for the parent yeah. as well to watch all of this. So when is the parent there and when is the parent asked to, to leave? That's a great question. And it's absolutely true that it can be really traumatic for the parents. You know, kids start to develop stranger anxiety at around nine months, 10 months of age. Mm -hmm. So that's about our cutoff for when we give the pre-medication. And oftentimes when a kid is just at that age, our nurses will do what we call the walk-away test. Mm -hmm. They'll actually take the child and try to carry them away from the parents mm -hmm. and see how the, the child reacts. And if they become extremely upset, then we'll use the pre-medication. Mm -hmm. So in general, it depends upon the institution and our culture here at CHOP is to give the kids the pre-medication because we think that that works best for 
taking away most of the remembering parts of the induction. However, there are many other institutions that don't use premedication that rely on what's called a parental induction. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they get the parents into a, a, a special suit that they can come into the operating room right. and the parent tries to comfort their child during the process. But you know, there's some pretty good research out there that shows that that's not as good as premedication, mm -hmm. and it is traumatic for the parents too. So here at CHOP, our culture has uh, been that we don't usually invite parents into the operating room. Now, if a parent insists on coming in, mm -hmm. or let's say that in some instances the premedication doesn't work as well as we would like it to, maybe the child spits it out, or maybe the latency period between getting it and coming into the operating room is too long and it's already been wearing off, mm -hmm. then we will have a parent come in. And uh, you know, what our experience has been is that that's rarely comforting for the child. Right. Even if the child is feeling secure by sitting on mom or dad's lap, someone is still putting a mask on their face. Right. And it's still not very comfortable feeling for the child. And the parent becomes extremely anxious too. Right. And the so anxiety we is transferred, I'm sure, in some way to the child. You, oh, children of know course. when their parents are stressed. Absolutely true. And I can tell you, when my son needed surgery twice, I made sure I was nowhere near the operating room. I was just waiting for him outside. Good. <laughs> so one of the biggest concerns that I think primary care providers and the parents have are just the risks of anesthesia. And I think we've seen more of this in the literature and the lay media lately, just about how we're anesthetizing, I guess, more kids than we used to in some ways because there are more surgeries and things that we can do for conditions, which is great. But are there risks to giving anesthesia to children? So in general, the risks of anesthesia are extremely low. The chance of something bad or life-threatening reaction to a healthy child is essentially unheard of these days. Now, Obviously, there are special cases where this could possibly happen or freak accidents, mm -hmm. but that's the, way how, that's the way we usually relate it to parents and the way we think about it is that it's statistically speaking, you're safer with us in the operating room than you are walking in your neighborhood at home. Right. That being said, if you think about the effects of the kinds of drugs that we use on children, they are extremely safe these days. Mm -hmm. uh, we use the anesthesia gases on almost all children. We also have an IV anesthetic called propofol that a lot of people have heard about mm -hmm. that we use also routinely on children. And even down to uh, newborns, premature infants, these drugs are extremely safe in general. Obviously, it takes uh, training and experience to learn about how much to give the children. Mm -hmm. And then there's adjunctive medicines we use, such as opioids sometimes, or uh, muscle relaxants, or antibiotics. It's very possible that some child could have an allergic reaction to one of those kinds of medicines, but that's pretty rare. We see, we're doing close to 40,000 uh, anesthetics a year here at CHOP, and I would say that we see a, on average about one allergic reaction every year or two even. Wow. So it's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. The other possibility is a disease called malignant hyperthermia, which right. some people are born with a mutation. And when it develops, you, you can be completely normal, normal phenotypically and not know that you have this susceptibility to it. Until you have anesthesia. Exactly, until you have anesthesia. And we do have an antidote for that. 
It's the drug called dantrolene, and every single operating room, I would hope, in the United States is equipped with this antidote. Mm -hmm. So permanent harm or serious morbidity from developing malignant hyperthermia, or what we call MH, is, is very unusual. Outside of permanent harm or death, are there other things that are um, concerning in terms of having surgeries for children? Thinking just, are, are there effects on IQ or developmental outcomes to children who have maybe even repeated anesthesia throughout their childhood? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question these <laughs> days. And so back in the 19... Uh, 80s, there was some very preliminary evidence in animals that exposure to common anesthetics could cause certain types of subtle developmental abnormalities. And that research carried through for several decades. And it really came to the forefront about five or seven or eight years ago now when we started to do some experiments on on humans. And what I mean by experiments, I, I more I mean is large-scale studies Okay. to see if babies who are exposed to anesthesia had any greater risk of developmental abnormalities. And that data is really confusing. And as of right now, we don't know the answer to that question. Mm. We think we think that brief intervals of anesthesia does not harm children during critical periods of development, which is usually in the first several years of life. Mm -hmm. What we don't know is we don't know what repeated exposures does. And if you think about it, a child that's getting repeated exposures to anesthesia clearly has some reason right. why they need conditions it. conditions that could also affect your development. That's exactly right. And it is really difficult to tease out whether or not it's the chronic condition, the frequent hospitalizations, mm -hmm. the psychosocial components that are essentially necessarily tied mm -hmm. to those experiences. We don't know whether it's the surgery itself, mm -hmm. the anesthetic agents mm -hmm. themselves, or let's say it could be due to some kind of blood pressure changes mm -hmm. during, during surgery. Very likely it's a combination of all of these, mm -hmm. but even still as we sit here today, I can't say that even that there might be a chance that anesthesia, repeated exposure to anesthesia causes neurodevelopmental abnormalities because we just don't have that, that, that kind of data yet. And I'm not quite sure we ever will. Right. It's very difficult to study. Right. Yeah, it's a complicated um, thing we to research. And I think that it's scary for parents who see those things sometimes in headlines. Yeah. Um, and it sometimes is blamed on the anesthesia. But like you said, there's probably a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't do elective surgery on young babies in general. Mm -hmm. And even though oftentimes a surgery might seem elective, the surgeons usually have pretty good reasons for wanting to do a particular kind of surgery on a child that young. So let's take, for example, ear tubes. Right. It's one of the most common surgeries we do. But let's face it, if you don't get the fluid out of the ear, then the child won't develop normally from a developmental perspective with their hearing. Right. So it's really important to sometimes do some of these so-called elective surgeries. At certain and, times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another one I can think of is the plastic surgeons often like to repair cleft lips right. early in life, like very early in the first few months of life. And that might seem like an easy target to question, mm -hmm. but it turns out that they have very good reasons from the, the perspective of feeding, mm -hmm. of healing, of the cosmetic repair. And, you know, we all know that cosmetic 
considerations of the face affect someone's lifetime. So how do you balance those considerations? It's, it's a really tough question. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that we, we try as best we can, and hopefully it doesn't occur, that we do something completely elective mm -hmm. in the first few years of life. Um, you mentioned when we were talking about medications, you mentioned opioids as being something that you sometimes use in light of the opioid epidemic and people talking about this more now. So how often are you using those and is that ever a concern about using opioids during uh, anesthesia and surgery? Yeah, so, so it is a big concern. You know, traditionally we do use opioids for two reasons. Number one, we think that if we can use them intraoperatively to take away some of the painful stimuli from the surgery, then we can use less anesthesia overall, and it could be better for the child. Mm -hmm. That's one. The second thing is that we think it could help with post-operative pain. If we start by giving the children opioids intraoperatively, and then we, the, the children wake up relatively, exactly, with relatively less pain, then we may be able to get away without giving them more opioids afterwards. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't always work as straightforward as it, it, it sounds. What we try and do for almost all children is to do uh, uh, nerve blocks. So wherever part of the body is being operated on, we try our best to do some kind of a local anesthesia block. There are some exceptions. The most glaringly obvious one is the tonsillectomy. Right, right now our practice is not to use local anesthesia, mainly because the side effects from using local an anesthesia in that area of the throat outweigh right. the potential benefits. So, but if you think about the kinds of surgeries we do on the peripheral uh, limbs or say hernias or circumcisions or even around the face, we are almost 100% now using local anesthesia to take away as much pain as possible okay. afterwards to keep our opioid use down. So what other bad effects do opioids have? So. Uh, it causes children to get more nausea and vomiting afterwards. Mm -hmm. And listen, nausea and vomiting in the scheme of things may not be that severe, but it's probably one of the most unpleasant experiences anybody right. could ever have right. after surgery. And sometimes it does cause dehydration and the inability to send somebody home. Right. So we try and minimize our opioids for that. And, you know, in light of the opioid crisis, there's more and more research coming out now that shows that children who have... Uh, opioids that they go home with tend to have a longer use of them uh, later in life. They tend to have more family members right. that will use them. So it's a really complicated issue. And, and I mean, overall, it's, it's such an important topic that we just try our best to minimize it as best as possible. Mm -hmm. It's great to hear that you're doing other, like you said, local blocks and other things to also manage pain so that we have more tools than just the opioids. But like you said, there are going to be procedures and times when they're necessary. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can think about using uh, some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Cotorolac, but, you know, there are some surgeries where because those kinds of drugs are associated with possibly more bleeding, that the surgeons will back away and be extra cautious. So, for example, tonsillectomy is a perfect, a perfect example of uh, post-tonsillectomy bleeding is a very serious uh, condition that requires coming back to the operating room. Anything the surgeons can do to minimize that, they they will do so, for example, by avoiding a drug like Ketorolec. Right. But on the other hand, we need to avoid the opioids. So it's a, again, it's a really precarious balance. And now 
what we're finding is that some surgeons are experimenting with more and more use of the non-steroidals after tonsillectomy. Mm. So some surgeons are using Motrin or ibuprofen afterwards, and some surgeons are giving Contorolec too. So time will tell to see how often we get complications from those different practices. So after surgery, in terms of treating pain, you're using things like you mentioned, the NSAIDs, Tylenol, I imagine, opioids if necessary. Are there are other things that you do in terms of managing post-op pain? So yeah, so acetaminophen is, uh, is pretty routine because the benefit-risk ratio seems quite favorable. The problem with acetaminophen is in the scheme of overall surgical pain, it doesn't do a very good job. Mm-hmm. We certainly include it because right. we think the, the harms are, are outweighed by the possible benefits, but it's just not a very good pain reliever for acute surgical pain. We use dexamethasone sometimes. Okay. That's been shown to, especially in tonsillectomies, reduce swelling, reduce pain, and get the kids back to functioning a little bit earlier. Dexamethasone is a great appetite uh, inducer, and uh, the kids will start eating quicker afterwards. And I think one of the most important things that we are evolving to in, in anesthesia is modifying our expectations of post-operative pain. Mm-hmm. For many years, we tried as best we could to do whatever we could to take away people's pain uh, almost completely. Right. And I think in light of the opioid crisis and in light of the, when, when we look back at the, the, the emphasis on taking away people's pain as at the fifth vital sign, we're shifting gears a little bit to say to parents and families, you know, some pain is expected and it could be bad, but it's self-limited. That's it's going to last. Expectations, yeah, right? exactly. Some pain is okay and it's a, and they're healing. That's exactly right. I mean, pain is, you can't go through life without pain. Right. And we all, through the course of our childhood, have to develop coping mechanisms. Right. And we try to rely on other things like ice, something as simple as ice or, mm-hmm. or movement or physical therapy after more involved surgeries, things like that. Right. Yeah, I was going to say this is where we rely on our colleagues in certain types of rehab, um, therapists, child life even, like you mentioned, distraction techniques. Yeah, absolutely. Get kids out of bed, moving, playing, and then they won't be thinking about pain as much. That's, that's the goal, yeah. So one of the things in primary care that we get asked the most about, certainly we're not doing anesthesia counseling for families, but uh, we do get asked to clear kids for dental sedation or similar outpatient procedures. So what do we need to be thinking about in terms of clearing someone for an outpatient sedation um, and what on their physical exam should we be looking at? Yeah, so this, this is a great issue that started way back I can remember in the 1980s when the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with their sedation guidelines. It was largely in, in response to some complications that occurred while sedating kids in the dentist's office. So from our standpoint, we would like children who have any kind of predisposition toward upper airway obstruction not to get sedated in a dentist's office. Now, what do I mean by that? The most common is big tonsils, big mm-hmm. adenoids. So the kinds of things as a pediatrician that I would ask before clearing a child or allowing a child to undergo sedation in a dentist's office is, do they snore at night? Okay. Do they have any kind of sleep apnea, whether or not they've had a sleep study or an overnight sleep study? Right. I would ask the parents if they ever stop breathing, if they ever gasp while breathing in their sleep, because sometimes the gasping 
is in response to several breaths of obstruction and then it kind of arouses the kid and they gasp a little right. bit. Any kind of snoring or any kind of indication uh, that they would have, if a, if a dentist gave them some sedatives, that it would obstruct their airways. So right. if you can, on physical exam, if you can examine a kid's tonsils, if they're really big, obviously you can't see the adenoids, right. but any indication at all. That's the number one primary concern. Because mm -hmm. when dentists get into trouble with sedation, that's pretty much always going to be the, the case. So what other kinds of kids are prone to upper airway obstruction besides children with sleep apnea or big tonsils? Well, it's going to be obese kids. Mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't put an obese child in a dentist's office with sedation. Now, what constitutes obesity? Right. So I, say you're talking about a lot of my patients. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just in the in in the United States, so uh, absolutely, yeah. What constitutes I don't, obese enough to not yeah. do dental sedation? I don't have a good answer. I I don't know, and I don't know of any research that has right. looked at that carefully and critically. It's going to be the pediatrician's judgment on how big a child's neck is. You know, mm -hmm. neck size is one of the things that sleep apnea specialists use mm -hmm. to determine the chances of someone obstructing during anesthesia. Uh, and just their overall assessment of the patients. It's, there's no good way, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. The other criteria is age. Mm -hmm. The smaller the child, the more compromised their airway will become once they become sedated. And so what age do you not allow it? Again, I don't have a good answer, mm -hmm. but my own intuition, my own sense would be probably under four. Okay. Yeah, but of course, there's no absolutes. Right. And every pediatrician has to use their own judgment as to whether they're, they think this child will safely not obstruct when the dentist gives them sedatives. Now, let's say that they're getting just nitrous oxide alone. And right. many dentists will use just nitrous oxide or laughing gas. You know, we've got over a century or more, probably even longer, use of nitrous oxide without complications, hmm. well, at least known complications. So I think if the dentist is going to use only nitrous oxide, Right. I'd feel a lot better hmm. about clearing that child as opposed to some dentists that use a combination of nitrous oxide plus other mild sedatives. Right. I've heard of Valium. I've heard of Chlorohydrate, which I don't think is available anymore. I've heard of uh, Midazolam or different cocktails. So those are the kids who you worry more about I do. instruction. That's exactly right. Any kind, anytime you combine the, the, the sedative with nitrous oxide. And then again, the other consideration, of course, is whether or not the dentist's office is equipped with the most appropriate monitors right. and comply with the AAP guidelines. Right. So know your local dentist. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Care. Yep, yep. So we covered a lot of ground, and certainly there's more we could talk about within anesthesia. But from what we talked about, what are your top three things that you want primary care doctors to know about anesthesia with children? Well, I'd like them to know that anesthesia for children is pretty safe these days. It's really unusual that something bad happens to an otherwise healthy child. Mm -hmm. I'd like them to know that at least one of the most common questions I get, which we went over before, is can too much anesthesia be bad for a baby's brains? Mm -hmm. And I'd like everyone to know that I don't know the true answer to that. Right. We'd like to think not, but we also would never do an anesthetic on a child that didn't need it for some important surgical reason. And time will tell whether or not that is um, 
that it's going to be a factor in how we anesthetize kids in the future. And then the third thing is, you know, we're really acutely aware of the opioid epidemic, the effects it might have on children and their families. And there is, and has been for a while, a real push to avoid opioids in children. It's also important just to acknowledge that we work closely with our surgical colleagues who, like you said before, are thoughtful about the timing of when they do surgeries and that they wouldn't be doing surgeries that aren't needed and, and yeah. causing exposure to anesthesia that wasn't needed. And so certainly this is a team effort discussion between all of the physicians involved and Absolutely. parents should know that we're all kind of working together about weighing the pros and cons of the anesthesia with the surgery and the appropriate developmental time to do it all. Couldn't say it better myself. I would like also to encourage pediatricians, if they ever have questions, call us, email us, anything. Great. We're really receptive to talking to the pediatric community about risks for children with specific conditions or diseases, and we'll, uh, we'd be happy to talk and give advice about anything. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and for taking Thanks for such having good me. care of our patients. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.